Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode 350. Yes, you heard me correctly. I said 350. We've been, uh, well, recording uh, 50 episodes in the Beyond 300 series. I'm here with uh, Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue. We've had a fun doing that. Uh, and, uh, hey, I guess we need to uh, pat ourselves on Woo-hoo! the back. Right? Uh, <laughs> 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 Thank you, everybody. Thank you, studio audience. We appreciate that very much. They're so enthusiastic. Uh, Exactly. But uh, all right, Sarah, tell us uh, what we're featuring today in terms of the author feature. Yeah, we're going to feature New York Times bestselling author Brian Selznick and his uh, book, Big Tree, which Booklist calls an enthralling and expansive meditation on what it means to be alive on this planet. Legendary director Steven Spielberg had this to say about the book. He says, the tale of the natural world is the greatest story we have to tell. And Brian delivers a brilliant chapter of that tale throughout the pages of Big Tree. Yep. And up next, we have our book recommendation and writing topic discussion. And today for our book recommendation, we are only recommending one book. um, And when we do, we're celebrating that one book um we are going to be featuring book six in the right quote series called writing community revision and editors a fun topic there um we're going to share the foreword and the reflections and we have some favorite quotes picked out to discuss yeah so uh, we'll finish up today with what's coming in the next episode uh but we're going to first jump right into our uh, author interview section of the show this is a uh, brian selznick uh, the book is big tree it's illustrations it's long it's uh short. It's uh, enticing. I enjoyed listening to this interview that uh, Sarah did. Uh, Hannah, tell us a little bit about Brian. Yeah, so Brian is a number one New York Times bestselling author and acclaimed illustrator whose books have sold millions of copies, um, garnered countless awards in worldwide, and have been translated into more than 35 languages. Um, his novel Big Tree began began as an, or, an original idea from Steven Spielberg, um, which is crazy and amazing, <laughs> and is a trailblazing adventure with nearly 300 pages of illustrations, like Landis said. Um, so Brian's two most recent books for young people, Baby Monkey, Private Eye, co-written with his husband, David Serlin, and Kaleidoscope, a New York Times notable children's book with 2021, were both New York Times bestsellers. Um, he's also illustrated the 20th anniversary edition covers of the Harry Potter series. Wow, oh, that's so cool. cool. Yeah. <laughs> he's got a uh, good resume. <laughs> yeah, and we've got some of his thoughts uh, in the author's words uh, himself, Sarah. Yeah, um, he said, Big Tree is about a kind of hope that can be found in nature. It's about surviving by working together to create a community. It's about moving forward, planning for the future, and growing, even in the face of destruction. The natural world also offers so many beautiful metaphors to help us live. Trees seem to be optimistic by design. Planting a seed is intrinsically an act of hope. Um, and that's one thing that I got to talk to him a little bit about in this interview is kind of the the hopeful view of nature and the trajectory of the world that he talks about here um, in the context of like all of the, you know the discussions about nature and climate change and everything, which a lot of times are doom and gloom. And he doesn't ignore all that, but he, he brings a hopeful tone to it as well. Um, but it's such a fascinating book. He's just an amazing, one of those people where you're like, he's just so smart and so creative. And it was really a privilege to be able to get a little glimpse into the way his mind works with the, the writing here, the beautiful illustrations throughout the book um, and talking to him in the interview. And he's gotten a lot of praise for the book too. Um, the Washington Post said, Brian Selznick pr- proves to be that rare creator capable of following one masterpiece with another. And the Associated Press calls him one of publishing's most imaginative storytellers. Right. Steven Spielberg singing his praises too. So, a lot of good, uh, a lot of good blurbs there for uh, for this. So, hey, let's listen in to uh, Sarah's interview of Brian. Hi, listeners. I'm super excited to be here today with Brian Selznick, author of Big Tree. Brian, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Sarah. I'm really happy to be here. So um, this book is it's such an amazing story, and the the story that the characters go on is a very long and interesting journey. There's a lot of adaptation and change along the way. And from what I know about the book itself and how it came to be, it sounds like that was also a long journey, <laughs> a lot yes. of adaptation <laughs> along the way. Um, can you tell us a bit about where this idea came from and how it came to be the book that we have now? 
Yeah, it, it, I can honestly say it was one of the uh, most unexpected journeys for any book that I have ever made. And they have all been unexpected in various ways. But uh, this one started in a particularly unusual way because I got a phone call from Steven Spielberg uh, asking me to write a movie for him. He had an idea uh, for a story he wanted me to tell. And so I, I got to fly across the country and I got to meet him. And uh, we ended up getting together about four times to talk about this, this idea that he had, which was essentially to tell a story about nature from nature's point of view. He wanted a movie about plants starring plants. And he, uh, he talked about how he realized he had never actually seen a movie like this. And I thought to myself, well, maybe we've never seen a movie like this because like, do we really want to see a movie about plants with talking, singing, dancing plants? Uh, but, you know, I really wanted to meet him and I was very excited to uh, get to get to talk with him. And the first conversation went so well that he invited me back for a second conversation a month later. And I eventually proposed a story that was about these two little sycamore seeds who I named Merwin and Louise. Uh, who would become separated from their mama tree, as seeds usually are, uh, and as children often are. Um, and they have to find a safe place to grow, uh, while simultaneously trying to figure out how to save the world for various reasons that we can also get into. Um, one of the seeds is very, uh, Merwin, is the older brother, is very rigid and uptight and sure he's correct. And um, the little sister uh, Louise is much more dreamy and open to voices and curious and um, sort of at the conflict between the, the two of them in a lot of ways. But then that leads to these much grander um, situations that, that ultimately involve the entire fate of the planet and the history of the Earth. And I worked on this screenplay because this was going to be a, a film for a couple of years. There were I wasn't going to do any artwork for the movie it was going to be professional animators and um then the pandemic hit and you know everything stopped and as we all know some things did not start up again and one of the things that uh i realized pretty quickly was that this movie was never going to happen for various reasons but by this point i had really fallen in love with the story and the characters and um, just everything I had learned about science and nature when I was researching. So I proposed to Mr. Spielberg and the co-producer, Chris Melodandry, uh, that I make the story into a book. And they got very excited. They loved my books and they thought this was a great idea. And one of the big benefits for me was that I now was going to be able to actually draw everything that was in my head as opposed to handing it over to the animators. And really the biggest transformation in a lot of ways was that the animators, with my guidance, were trying to figure out where to put a face on the seeds. You know, like where do the eyes go? Seeds don't have faces. And they, every, it was like they were all brilliant animators, but everything looked just a little bit goofy. And I had had a rule for myself in the story that everything had to be based in science. So, you know, like plants actually can communicate with each other. And so having the plants talk was fine within my story. Um, and when it was time for me to do the pictures in my book, in the, in, in the book I was now working on, I realized I should take the same rule from the writing about everything being based in science and apply that to the drawings. So the reason the seeds always look silly with faces is simply because seeds don't have faces. And so I was like, oh, I'm just going to draw sycamore seeds. Like that's going to be the entire character design. And, and they actually look like little spikes once they're released from the seed ball from which they grow on their mama tree, once they're released. They look like these little tiny spikes with like a fluff on the end. And that fluff helps them move through the air. It might connect them to like fur of an animal to move them further afield. And so gently anthropomorphizing that fluff so it becomes a little bit like arms and legs or like, uh, you know, hands reaching for each other uh, without actually being arms and legs. Again, fit within my scientific rule, right? Because it's, it's inspired by science. Um, and the fluff actually does help them to uh, move through the world. And uh, then I worked on the book for another 
year or two, I believe, uh, crafting, figuring out how to craft the story uh, as a narrative within the pages of a book, trying to figure out how I wanted to draw the pictures, what, what, they were, what the purpose was for the, for the drawings in the book, the, the feeling of like being immersed into this world and, and following the narrative visually as well as with words. And, uh, and that led to the book that you read. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you got a chance to actually draw the images because they are so, so beautiful and so perfect for the story. And like you were saying, there's that almost kind of walking the line between anthropomorphic vision of the seeds, but still feeling real. Um, and the drawings are, they're lively and they're animated, but there's also like almost the feeling of like, if you go to a natural history museum and you see mm. the old, you know, uh, plates where there's like hand drawn images of uh, leaves and birds and the Audubon type paintings mm. and that sort of thing. Um, so they're really, really beautiful. And it's, it's such an ambitious project too. I mean, the, the scope of the story you're telling is geologic. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. The book is over 500 pages. I mean, you wrote it, you illustrated it. Did you feel um, intimidated at all at the outset <laughs> of creating such an epic work? <laughs> I think, I think one of the good things about the somewhat strange way that I work is that at the outset you know I don't know I don't know what I'm doing right like I don't know where it's going to go I don't know what the, who the characters are going to be and generally I start writing because there's something that interests me like something from history a place um, generally not it's generally not always like specific people but like anecdotes I've heard or um all the things that fascinate me. And then I sort of figure out how to craft a narrative that brings those things in. And then I have to figure out who the people are to make those things happen. And then sort of the last thing I figure out uh, often is the emotional reason that drives the people that causes the plot to then take place. So it's, it's a very backwards way of working because nothing, nothing will matter if the emotional reason for the story isn't there. And, but strangely, when I'm working, I think of plot first and, um, and, and, I'm, and it's a very mechanical way of starting. But that's just, it's like, I've just realized like, that's just how I work. I wouldn't, mm -hmm. you know, it's not like, it's not like how I recommend that people work. It's just how I work. And so when I began trying to put together this narrative uh, and, and getting the chance to talk to Steven Spielberg uh, four times uh, about elements that could happen in the story, ways in which to make the drama feel more heightened and exciting, uh, ways in which the journey kind of unraveled. He would mention movies that he thought I should watch that would be inspiration to the story, or he would just mention a movie and I would go and watch it mm -hmm. um, to see if there was any inspiration in it. Um, so it, 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 it's like slowly everything is beginning to like be pieced together. And by the time I'm deep in it and I realize what the scope is, it's kind of too late to go back. And suddenly it's like, oh, this story encompasses all of history from the Big Bang up until, you know, what in the story is present tense, which is the end of the Cretaceous era. But it's, it includes essentially like, almost all of the evolution of life on earth and the creation of the stars and the planets and the, you know, and, and, and literally everything. And it, and it looks at how time passes for different entities, right? Time passes in a certain way for us, but we forget that other creatures experience time differently, especially trees, right? You know, trees, like a tree, a young tree could be a hundred years old mm -hmm. and we look at the bark or the you know trunk of a big tree and it and it looks like it's not moving right like it it just looks like a big solid thing that's there but in fact trees are always moving and if you were to do a time lapse photography of bark it would actually begin to flow and move like water and but it's just we can't see it because we're not living in the same time frame that they are mm -hmm. And so thinking about ways in which I could bring these ideas into play to help fill out the story and, and, and sort of help fill out how the, um, 
what the you know how the story plays out, right? So so sometimes I would come up with a section of a story uh, and and then try to figure out how that could fit into the narrative. So I have to then like plug it in. Uh, there was a really fun moment where uh, Steven Spielberg said, I, I think there should be a moment that's sort of like a Busby Berkeley musical. And, and, I, and I was like, what? Like, this isn't going to be a musical. And, mm-hmm. and if, you know, if you know Busby Berkeley, he was very famous in the, for the, especially in the 1930s for these movie musicals where like, there's like hundreds of dancers dancing in these crazy patterns mm-hmm. that you often see from above and like legs opening and closing and arms and everyone's working in unison. And I suddenly realized that would be an amazing way to film the sequence where the earth is talking about the creation of life on the planet. Mm -hmm. And we could see it like almost like as if everything's slowly coming together. And then once life on earth is sort of (laughs) up and running, then we could see how everything is really interdependent, right? Everything is connected. I wanted to get across the idea show that everything is uh, interconnected and what better way than to like use the idea of this kind of choreography as a way to show that yeah. and it was very satisfying because I said that sort of on the spot to to Steven Spielberg and he went yes that's great let's do that <laughs> and so that was in the screenplay but then when I was adapting it for the book I realized you can't quite do choreography in the same way uh you do have movement right because you have the the turning of a page right that's that's the movement i have now that's the, the or at least the literal movement and, and and as a bookmaker i'm always most interested in what can happen when you turn the page that's what i'm that's what i love you know playing with and uh, discovering is what else can the turning of a page do and so when it came time to draw that sequence uh, i knew i didn't want to have any words for that for that sequence within the within the um story i wanted it to to unfold visually and by that point you know in the pandemic i had started doing very strange abstract paintings uh before i got back to my work just because it you know time and the world fell apart so i felt like my art kind of did too in certain ways and i just started making these very very uh unusual uh for me uh Mm -hmm. abstract paintings and it turned out, though, that those abstract paintings were very uh, influential on myself when it was time to do this work. So it, there's a sequence that's it's almost abstract, going from the Big Bang through life developing on Earth. But it's inspired by that sort of Busby Berkeley concept, as well as like, what's the most abstract I can get in a sequence of children's books, while st- a, a sequence in a children's book, while still having a specific part of the narrative that I'm trying to tell. Yeah, yeah, I think I know which images you're talking about, and I love those too. Um, those are beautiful, oh, and it's. I think this book. I mean, everything you're talking about is so huge. <laughs> the <laughs> the time that you're covering, the space that you're covering, the ideas that are covered in the book. Physically, it's it's a hefty book, um, but it's also very kind of small and intimate in some ways because you do have these two little seeds who are the main characters, and they're the sort of eyes we're seeing this world through. And even the way that the pictures are framed sometimes, you're sort of focusing us in on just a little bit at a time and guiding mm-hmm. us through the scene. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of setting limits for yourself as a storyteller and how you balance between like letting your imagination run wild and go big versus then restricting yourself and how mm. maybe that can help you? Right, boundaries are very helpful, right? Like it's, it's good to have a, that's why it's often better when a teacher gives you a specific assignment than says than saying you can do anything you want, which it sounds like it should be great, mm-hmm. but boundaries can be very helpful. So like I so I knew early on I was telling this story about these little tiny seeds, and I knew, in a certain way, although I wasn't really thinking about it very much, that the fact that they're so tiny and that they feel so uh, insignificant compared to everything else in the world parallels how many of us feel every day of our lives when we think about the problems that we're facing, right? So many of us feel tiny and insignificant and like we can't do anything, right? So, so in, in, in a way, the only way to tell a gigantic story that might feel like it matters and that might feel like there's um, hope is to actually figure out a way to 
to, to dial everything down to the smallest scale, right? And so by getting intimate with creatures, uh, characters who are themselves literally very tiny and, and going into their world and their immediate concerns, right? Because their immediate concern is I'm in a seed ball and I'm going to have to like go off into the world and like find a place to, you know, take root. And, you know, and like, if you actually look at the numbers, like the number of seeds that don't ever take root is, you know, exponentially larger than the couple of seeds that do take root, which is why so many root seeds are set off into the world, because only a couple of them are going to take root. And so, you know, I wanted to follow a couple of seeds that I knew, you know, were going to take root and that by again, by focusing in on their tiny concerns, it, it felt like it gave me the space to bring in everything else. And, 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 the, and the access point was Louise's dreams, right? Like the access point was that one of the characters is just someone who has that strange kind of connection to something bigger than herself, right? Like, and, it, and I feel like we, we meet people, we know people, uh, some of us may be those people who just have some kind of connection. I feel like we've met people like that, you know, even if it's not us. That, And that's just Louise. It's just who she is, you know. But of course, her brother doesn't believe any of it and he won't listen to her. You know, but that, that sense that she's dreaming about the stars, she's talking to the stars, she's hearing a voice during the day that seems to be calling to her. They eventually start meeting other plants, other characters, who also think they're hearing something, but nobody can quite make sense of what it is that they're hearing, right? So, so I was able to begin to lay the groundwork uh, for the way in which we get to hear the earth itself, right? Because ultimately it's, while she's never literally named, um, she never says, I am the earth. Um, she, Louise eventually and Merwin eventually, we the reader eventually come to hear the voice, right? And we, and we come to learn, you know, who this voice is, what this voice has been trying to say to everybody, what, what most of the characters have been unable to hear and the warning that, that they've been trying, that she's been trying to give. And so, so yeah, so I guess that for me, the only way into the grandeur of the universe was through what was uh, incredibly small. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it makes the story approachable as a reader, too, because mm. you, you're kind of almost holding our hand uh, through it the whole way. Um, and, you know, as you were mentioning, there is kind of a fantastical element in the story you know the the earth has a voice where she speaks in english to us on the page (laughs) these seeds are communicating in english but it is all rooted in science and you're you're dealing with these very interesting facets of nature like the big bang or you know what plants were like in the cretaceous period or how fungi you know interact and communicate with each other um can you tell us a little bit about some of the research that you did to create this yeah, yeah. The first person I went to after I had the first meeting with Steven Spielberg was uh, someone who I met at the New York Botanical Garden named Jamie Boyer, who's a paleobotanist uh, who studies ancient plants. And one of the challenges about studying ancient plants is that there's so su- such little uh, fossil record because plants are mostly soft. Mm-hmm. They mostly just dissolve when they die. Um, and, you know, because most fossils, when we think of fossils, we think of you know, the bones of dinosaurs that are, or seashells that have, that have fossilized. Um, so plants leave a very little record, right? We have some record, some petrified wood. Um, we have some, in, we have some things in amber, um, but most, mostly it's very hard to identify uh, what plants were really like and what plants were around. So he's been studying this. So you know, he was the one who first really told me about the uh, end of the Cretaceous period and how by that point, because there were so many insects, there was real biodiversity and the, and the forests really looked like our forests today, right? Because I wanted people to finish the story 
and go out into the world and have it look a little bit like the world in the story, right? Because I think when, uh, when Spielberg first approached me, he imagined the story potentially taking place during the Devonian era, which is about 200 million years before the Cretaceous era, before dinosaurs, before most uh, animals, when the world was really covered in plants. Like, and that made sense for a story that was going to be about plants. But Jamie uh, Boyer pointed out that there were also very few insects at the time. And so because there were so few insects, there was very few bio, there was very little biodiversity, which meant the world, there were some animals and some insects, but the world was mostly ferns and like giant, amazing ferns. And I just thought, I don't know if anybody could write a story about ferns on a planet of ferns that we would really want to watch. And, and then I realized, like, if, you wa- if, you, if you're watching a movie set on a planet of giant ferns, it doesn't look like our planet now. So when you finish the movie, you wouldn't have that same kind of connection. So discovering that the forests at the end of the Cretaceous period had this connection to today's forests, and that, in fact, some of the trees from that time are still alive, like sycamore trees and ginkgo trees, and, in fact, you know, ferns, of course, are still around after hundreds of millions of years, and so that's how I, you know, decided that I would make the main character uh, sycamore seeds um, because the sycamore trees were actually around back then. And I wanted that connection. I found out about these little tiny creatures called foraminifera, which live in the water. And there's billions and billions of them in all the water in all the world from all of time. And they're not animals and they're not plants, but they have shells and they're almost microscopic, but about the size of sand. And when they die, they fossilize because they have hard bodies. And when they're being fossilized, their bodies capture the carbon from the water, which is the carbon from the atmosphere from that time period that they die in. So if a scientist today finds a fossil of a foraminifera that is 200 million years old and they measure the carbon in that fossil, they can find out what the carbon level of the atmosphere was at that time. And that's, in fact, how we learned about uh, climate change in the first place. It's from foraminifera. And so I was able to put them into the story and I made them into these characters called scientists, you know, whose job is collecting data. Um, and so, uh, you know, so it was really fun to be able to do this research and then figure out ways to get the information into the into the story in some re- relatable human way even though i was uh, not writing about actual humans yeah that, that's fascinating and i think the story does have that effect of you you read it and then you want to go out and do more research and, and oh good like, oh, what are these <laughs> let me let me learn more about this um so i can imagine for adults but especially for kids too it's a great right. kind of starting point for those lessons and discussions. Um, and I have a few more questions to ask, but first I'd love to have you read us a little bit from oh. the book. Do you have a, a passage that you can share? I do. I have a section. It's from, it's the beginning of chapter four. And, you know, I will, you know, remind people that, you know, a, a third of the book is illustrated. Mm-hmm. And so the, the book actually, the chapter actually starts with this close up of the sycamore seed ball that I've, you know, that we've been discussing. And so one of these seeds is Merwin. And let's say it's that one. And, <laughs> We can't see Louise because she is in this little dark area here. She's the one seed who's a little too small to see the surface. So her brother Merwin describes the world to her. And, um, and I think that's the main thing you need to know as I read. And there'll also be a mention of the characters who are called ambassadors. And they're inspired by the mycorrhizal system, which is the fungi that in real life connect the roots of a forest and turn individual trees into a community. And uh, most of the energy that trees take in from sunlight and water goes to keeping the, the mycorrhizal system alive because it helps the forest understand what's happening in all corners and when there's threats and dangers. And, and, it's, a, and it's, a, it's a real amazing system that really forms this beautiful community. So you'll hear a mention of the ambassadors and you can imagine like in my version, like little tiny mushrooms pop up to like tell the trees what's going on and then disappear. Um, So here we are, we're in the forest. It's the Cretaceous era. There's a little seed ball hanging from a (laughs) sycamore seed, hundreds and hundreds of seed balls, but we're near one of them. Mm 
a strange trembling moved through the air. All the little seeds felt it. The sensation grew stronger, and soon a distant blast of thunder rocked the forest. Lightning flashed on the horizon, and the faint smell of smoke spread through the branches. What was that? asked Louise, shaken from her thoughts about the stars. Merwin had no idea. Um, just a little bit of rain from beyond the forest, he said. Uh, Isn't that right, Mama? The great noise grew louder, and for the first time, Mama Tree did not answer. She was too focused on her argument with the ambassadors far below. Meanwhile, Louise was thinking about the strange message she'd been hearing and wondering if it might be about her future. What would her future hold? Merwin, what if I don't want to be a tree? What are you talking about? said Merwin. What if I want to be a star or a bird when I grow up? Or what's that other thing you were describing? What thing, Louise? That, that big green sparkling thing with the point? The mountain? Yeah, the mountain. Describe it to me again. You know what it looks like. Please, Merwin. Uh, it's big, said Merwin. And uh, green? It reaches up to the sky. <gasps> it can touch the sky? Yes. That's what I want to be when I grow up. What? A beautiful mountain that can touch the sky. We can't be mountains when we grow up, said Merwin. Why not? Because we're trees, Louise. Well, yes, I, I know that, she said. But what type of tree do you want to be? I'm not sure what type of tree I want to be. We're sycamore seeds, Louise. We don't have a choice. Hmm, said Louise. Maybe, but I don't know if that's what the stars are saying. Stars can't talk, Louise. They can in dreams. Merwin was just about to explain the difference between dreaming and real life when the argument between Mama and the ambassadors grew stronger. All the little seeds felt their attention pulled towards their mother's voice. Hundreds of giants are coming this way, she said. Why are there so many, she demanded. What are they running from? We're trying to figure that out, said the ambassadors. Then all three little mushrooms jumped from another underground jolt. Oh, they cried. Wait, now we know what it is. Well, tell us, yelled Mama on behalf of the whole forest. And as one, the ambassadors screamed, Fire! And then there's a huge fire, and then we discover that the giants are actually dinosaurs. And all of these dinosaurs are coming through the forest. And so that's from chapter four of Big Tree. I love that. I can imagine, especially for a kid, hearing that or reading that, they would be so pumped when the dinosaurs come in. <laughs> um. Yeah, when the, when the dinosaur finally comes... <laughs> It's, it's one spread of just like the dinosaur's eyeball mm -hmm. going by, and then you turn the page, and you just see its neck, and then you turn the page, and you see its neck is still going, mm -hmm. and then you see a foot, and, then you see, and it takes like 10 pages yeah. for the dinosaur, and then the tail, and then the very last page is the very end of the tail going by before Louise, who again can't see anything, says, Merwin, what was that? Describe it to me. And he's been terrified of what he just saw. And he's like, oh, it was nothing. It was nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's such a great way to get the scale of it. And I love their their characters, too, their personalities, Merwin and Louise. Like, I loved Louise, but I could definitely relate to Merwin. <laughs> yeah. yeah, people people keep asking me, like, who the characters are based on. And I, it wasn't until I finished the book that I realized they're both me. Mm -hmm. Like, the side of me that's very, you know, rigid and, you know, and then the other side of me that's dreamy. And so... I'm, uh, I'm glad you found that. You, you felt like you could relate as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The little internal debate <laughs> yes. expressed in them. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Brian. This is wonderful. I really enjoyed hearing about this book and can't wait to share it with our listeners. Uh, thank you so much. It was really great to talk with you. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, sararcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. 
And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, here we are in Act 2 of the podcast uh, where we do writing topics uh, and book recommendations. And this time we're combining them together because we're recommending one book. And, uh, you know, it is our book, but that's okay. We're still going to recommend it. It's book (laughs) six in the Write Quote series titled Writing Community Revision and Editors. We focus on four things in this book, uh, and most of them are in the title. We talk about writing communities, talk about revision, talk about editors, and then we add a little section on mistakes. Uh, and we're going to have fun with this. We're going to have the forward, uh, the audio version of the forward that uh, Sarah reads. And uh, I'm going to have the audio version of my reflections uh, from the quotes in this book. Uh, and then we're going to talk about some of our favorite quotes. First, let's hear uh, Sarah's forward. Engaging with my writing community led me to write this forward. When I returned to my home state of North Carolina after several years living in other states and abroad, one of my first moves was to search for local writing organizations. I joined the Charlotte Writers Club, where I met Landis Wade and became familiar with Charlotte Reader's podcast. Then, after appearing on the podcast a couple of times, I was honored to join as a co-host. So many opportunities I've had as a writer have come about because of other writers and readers. Because the publishing world is so competitive, and because the career path of a writer is seldom linear, networking is an invaluable tool for writers, and it's one I'm glad I learned in the trenches of the entertainment industry as a screenwriter. But building a network of other writers and readers is not just about seeking professional advancement. It's also one of the best ways to improve your craft. In this book, we cover the revision stage of writing, which for most writers is not a solo effort. As Emily Cataneo puts it, outside voices can be really helpful. And I know for myself, they're downright necessary. Multiple rounds of revisions are always part of my process, and input from others, whether editors, critique group members, or beta readers, shows me the changes I need to make. When you've written something that's flowed straight from your brain, even from your subconscious, you'll almost certainly have blind spots because of how close you are to the work. I find that taking time away between drafts and getting feedback from other writers are the magic ingredients that help me overcome those blind spots. So don't be afraid to share those early warts and all drafts with your trusted readers. Your community will help you spot mistakes, another topic we cover in this book, and broaden your subjective perspective with their own. In return, you can build your writing community by offering your own feedback. This is a great way to connect with other writers and to provide them something of value, too. Plus, it's a perfect opportunity to continue your own education as a writer. Reading analytically and helping others assess what is or isn't working in their writing, what underpins those dynamics, and how to optimize what's there will keep your literary muscles in shape. Engaging with your writing community isn't just good for the head, it's good for the heart and soul. As Susanna Marin says, I love meeting other writers. I love having writers as friends because we all share that component of our lives. That quote, along with so many others in this book, gives me the feeling of, yes, exactly, you get it. Because it's true, the writing experience is a unique one, and there's tremendous satisfaction in connecting with people who get it. These are the people who know how wonderful it feels to place in a contest, or get a manuscript request from an agent, or finally land on the perfect title, and who can celebrate those successes with you. They're also the people who know what it's like when the words just aren't coming or when you get another rejection letter and who can prop you up during those down times too. Plus, writers can learn from each other by sharing tips and experiences and bouncing around ideas. If nothing else, your writer friends are the ones who won't make you feel crazy for hearing character voices in your head or having a browser search history full of ways to get rid of a body. That research for your thriller work in progress can get pretty hairy. I'm grateful for the Charlotte Readers podcast community, our listeners, Patreon supporters, and guest authors and bloggers featured throughout this series, and now you, the reader of this book. I invite you to continue engaging with us in the future and hope you find a sense of community, camaraderie, and maybe a little commiseration in these pages. All right. Thanks, Sarah, for uh, getting us uh, fired up there about this book. Um, We're going to start off with uh, a quote about community because uh, writing communities uh, kind of head up the title of this book. Uh, Hannah, you've got one from Heather Newton, uh, who's involved with the Flatiron Writers Conference up in Asheville. What what does she say? Yeah, Heather is just so great, too. She's like a community expert, I feel like, (laughs) always partnering with authors for events and all sorts of stuff. Um, She says, something I learned later is the importance of community in process as opposed to the goal of publication. Um, I like 1000% 
agree with that. I think if you're, I mean, the goal, it's not to say that you can't have this goal of publishing your book, like that's, that's totally valid and you should have that if that's what you want. However, I think that looking at your community and just the process of building that community and your writing process and how it grows through your community, um, that's what's going to get you to the goal of publication. So it's kind of just like, I don't know. I think that's a really cool way of looking at it. It's like just step by step. This is what brings you to this point and just, I don't know. I think we talk about this a lot on this show, just how valuable it is to be a part of a group of writers that are offering you good feedback and who kind of see you and your creative side for who you are and um, support each other. And I think, um, yeah, I just, I love that. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, we could, uh, riff on this one, but uh, Sarah, you've got one on community that kind of ties into this as well about Carolyn Baker. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, Carolyn says the willingness to be vulnerable and say I've struggled, I've not gone deep enough or not worked hard enough to be willing to get that interaction and feedback from other writers, from editors, from readers. It's really a gift. And the connectivity with others who are doing the same thing can really be very supportive. Um, and again, like Hannah said, I a thousand percent agree with this. <laughs> I think it's so true. Like you, you really need to find your community um, as a writer. I think we've talked on the show before about how writing, you know, you can choose to be very solitary as a writer if you want. Usually when you're doing the actual writing, you're going to be alone with your thoughts um, and you can self-publish and do everything on your own and get it out there on your own. But it's so much, I think, creatively easier and better and just sort of personally and socially more rewarding if you turn it into a community endeavor and connect with other writers. Um, and it it makes you a better writer too, because like she's saying, you it pushes you to, to get that feedback and to point out where you've been struggling um, in the writing or to hear other people say what's not working for them and they can help, um, help you get to where you want to be creatively. So she who collects uh, writing uh, community groups uh, like uh, Chosky's <laughs> or <true>. famous <laughs> valuable pennies or <laughs> I, I, I've, I've downsized a little bit but I'm still you I'm okay. trying <laughs> there's the community queen yeah yes. <laughs> well I've got a community one too this is from Stephen Grossman he has a little uh, touch of humor here when he's talking about writing community he says if I knew it was so much fun being friends with writers I wouldn't have bothered with people that aren't <laughs> and <laughs> Coming from a legal background, and we got a lot. We got a lot of lawyers that are good, good folks, and good men and women out there who practicing law and everything. But not nearly as much fun being at a cocktail party with lawyers as it is being with a cocktail party of a bunch of artists who are talking about make believe and <laughs> fiction and nonfiction and writing and poetry. Yeah, all the good stuff. Storytelling. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Uh, so he's right. I agree with that. And uh, you know, writing community is. One of those things that um, essentially that we're doing by this podcast and also by putting out these books. So it's all part of all the writers and authors who appeared on this podcast are part of the Charlotte Rouge podcast, uh, you know, community. And we're happy to put this book out and others uh, to celebrate uh, that connection. And we wouldn't have learned from them had we not uh, invited them to be a part of the community and um, they're sharing their wisdom with everyone else. But then again, you know, there are mistakes um, that we make, whether we get help from a writing community or a writing group or what. Uh, and Sarah, you've got one from uh, Kathy Pickens, who's been on our show many times. Yeah, um, Kathy on the subject of mistakes says, if we're not making mistakes and things aren't working, we just aren't trying anything new, uh, which is a great way to look at it. Like if you're pushing yourself and you're experimenting and you're kind of um, expanding your boundaries as a writer, I think it's inevitable that along the way you're going to make mistakes. You're going to write something and be like, what the heck is this? <laughs> you know, I think if you're just doing the same thing over and over again, like, yeah, that's, that's easier, but you're probably not living up to your full potential as a writer and it's not going to be as exciting and you're not going to create something that's exciting for your readers. Um, so accept that the mistakes are a part of that process and that if you're really pushing yourself and really trying and um, doing something artistic and new, then it, it might be more challenging and there's going to be some issues that, that happen along the way. Yeah. And Hannah, I know you don't make any mistakes. Uh, no, no, <laughs> no never. Ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's what I tell my husband. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, but uh, even, you know, in the publicity world, um, you know, things don't always work, but that's why you try. That's why you try them out, see what works and what doesn't. Right. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think like, I don't know, there was, I feel like one of the last, or one of the previous episodes, you'd asked me what I would have told myself um, Mm -hmm. when I was a younger publicist. And I kind of regret my answer. And I feel like... (laughs) (laughs) You want to edit your answer now? (laughs) A little bit. Yeah, I'm going to jump back in (laughs) (laughs) because it is about mistakes. Like, but yeah, not being afraid to make mistakes, but like, you know, not being afraid to make mistakes in the sense that you're looking... If, if it doesn't work out, it's fine. And the person on the other end of an email or on the end, other end of the phone is just a person. Um, so for authors, too, that are pitching themselves, or they're kind of worried if they're going to... I used to be, like, so paranoid I was going to spell something wrong or skip or, like, miss a word or, like, do something like that. And it's, like, now I literally have done... I've done it so many times because I'm just doing so many things and I'll, like, respond, even if I don't know the person, be like, LOL, I'm so sorry. <laughs> that was my fault or whatever you know it's just a person on the other end of everything we're all just people kind of trying to figure it out um but yeah it's just like not being afraid to make those mistakes because you're right in publicity like you never know what's going to work like it's all about trying different things and tweaking your methods and that's kind of how you get to the place you're supposed to be yeah it's like you know we added uh hand of the team here and we text back and forth some to do some prep work and i say hey janet what does this mean uh there's an acronym here you know <laughs> I think I've gotten LOL now, laugh out loud. But there are a cu- couple of those coming All caps, like, always. Yeah. And I'm Janet like, knows. I'm not she sure what that it. one means. <laughs> Janet's cool. Yeah, exactly. She's got the answer. Gotta uh, teach Simon. <laughs> we need to do that. Well, um, you know, the revision process is about uh, dealing with different kinds of mistakes. We're talking about mistakes there in the sense of, you know, trying new things and if you do you're going to make mistakes because you're not as experienced with it but even when you're experienced writer um you know revision is a part of the process that maybe it's not a mistake but it's you're, you're improving the manuscript and uh, Hannah, you've got a quote from maggie smith on the topic of revision yeah maggie says i wrote this book three different times and i mean from beginning to end three different times and it was very different in all three of those incarnations um i love that and i think like i've i love revisions anyway i think you know i've talked about this before but i'm kind of a perger when i write and like i think without revisions it would be just nothing (laughs) it'd be worthless so and i feel like for it's just kind of looking at even if you have to write the same story 50 times i think sylvia molnar said that in our interview with the last episode she's like i have no shame in saying i wrote this book 50 different times like i had 50 different versions um and you're gonna find something different whether it's about your characters or the story or their history or like the place the setting whatever it might be um every time you write something even if it's in the same general realm and i just think like i love kind of going back to not being afraid to make mistakes like not being afraid to do revisions and kind of restart the entire thing if you have to just kind of let your creativity take control yeah and I've got uh, a quote on revision as well um, it uh, comes from my editor Nora Gaskin uh, and <laughs> it's pretty straightforward she, her formula she says the formula I use is add subtract reorder and clarify and, and I love that, uh, the simplicity of, of that directive. Um, obviously, there's a lot of work that goes into figuring out what should be added, what should be subtracted, and how to reorder something and uh, how to clarify. But when you're talking about clarifying, it's uh, beta readers come in very handy there, even before you get to an editor, because if they don't understand or they're confused by you know, what the characters are doing or what, what's being said on the page, and they give you that feedback, well, then... Uh, my mantra is it's not the reader's fault, it's the writer's fault. You can go fix it, you can clarify it. Reordering, I think, gets, you know, we talked about uh, the hook earlier. Sometimes the hook is on page 50, you know, and so reordering is putting the hook in the right place, you know, putting it up front. Uh, subtracting is what some authors have a hard time with if, if they've written that scene they just love, but uh, it's got to go if it can be summarized and uh, treated that way. And then adding, this is a part I really like, um, because subtracting is weird. It's not normal math. You know, you, you end up subtracting certain things and you add twice as much sometimes because you get a great idea. You know, when you kill something off that uh, wasn't letting the manuscript go somewhere. Or your editor says, you know, I just don't like the way this is playing out. I'm I'm not sure what you should do, but, you know, there ought to be something. And so you start thinking, like, oh, I get, I get a better idea. And that's where you add something to the manuscript that adds something uh, to it. So revision, um, I would say, I I had a lot of revisions in my novel, Deadly Decorations, um, 
you know, by choice, but also because I had some beta readers that gave some good feedback. And then when the editor got it, yeah, thanks, Nora. You know, we did some more revisions. <laughs> uh, what about you, Sarah? Um, are you into the revision thing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's crucial. You know, I, I definitely always do numerous drafts um, after a first draft. And I think the subtracting part of the process, too, is something that I am embracing more and more as I go on as a writer. I think inherently it can be kind of difficult because you, you put work and you put, you know, your blood, sweat and tears and time into writing whatever it is that you have there on the page and you don't want to get rid of it and you feel like that's a waste or maybe there's um, a certain turn of phrase or something about it that you like and you, you hate to kind of kill your darlings. But the more time goes on, the more I'm like, yeah, like just get rid of it. Mm. Just hit that delete yeah. button. <laughs> I don't yeah. need it. And it's kind of liberating to be like, I can just erase it. And there's always going to be more <laughs> words. I'm not going to run out. Um, if I think that I might be able to use it in some way later, I can save it and keep it in another document and then maybe pull it out and bring it into this project in a different way or into something else. Um, I think some of that is a screenwriting thing too, because with screenwriting, you have to be so concise and so kind of um, focused in your words that I do a lot of subtracting when I work on a screenplay. Um, and it's it's nice to be able to see that page count go down because it's usually too long on a script. Um, so yeah, the subtracting part can be difficult, but if you just kind of allow yourself to go for it, it can be kind of fun actually. <laughs> yeah, and Hannah, in the in the world that you're in on the publicist side, you, you're creating all these, uh, you know, novel sheets and media sheets and things. And, you know, you really only have a page to work with. And so revision, I mean, that's an important part of the process, right? I mean, to get rid of the e extra words and find the words that works and what draws people's attention to what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's part of my job, too, is sort of taking, like, like if we're looking at a backgrounder or something, and the author has, like, a page and a half long bio that they want to <laughs> include, yeah. it's kind of yeah. like, I just, I have to go and cut, 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 yeah. cut, like, a bunch of that stuff. And I've gotten we, questions. We don't need to have the award that you got in first grade in here, you know. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. I mean, and it's like, it's it's tough. And I realize for writers, too, that's what you do. You write. Like, yeah. you, you, it's programmed into your, like, process to be like, let me just type this whole thing out. But it's like, you really don't need, and I will say this, too. It's like, I usually have multiple different, like, media sheets for different purposes because it's like you know your your creative writing degree probably doesn't matter if you're pitching to like I don't know a golf publication about your golf book or whatever you know what I mean it's just like something it's different all the time but I've had writers ask me questions too like well why did you cut that out why did you do that I feel like this is a good thing and I'm just like I just it's not gonna matter it matters to too you much. and it's that's great yeah. <laughs> but like well, it's interesting because uh, I've noticed this on the podcast. You know, we get uh, these media sheets from the from the big five publishers, uh, and oftentimes the author's bio is like two sentences, yeah, know, or maybe three at the most. And uh, these are coming from people that have got that they could fill up a page of, of accolades, but they pick one or two uh, that really matter. And uh, you know, of course, it helps if one of them is. <laughs> three New York Times bestselling <laughs> books and you don't need but two sentences, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, shorter can can be better in that regard. Just pick out a couple of things that that uh, make a difference there. I don't know. We got off on this. Uh, I don't know. I led you down that path with the, <laughs> the whole media sheet thing, but we're, we're going to get back. Uh, I'm editing myself now. Okay, we're going to yeah, edit, man. It's just, good job. So we're going to talk about <laughs> editing now and editors, and we're going to start out uh, with, uh, well, we'll start out with uh, Sarah with, on the editing side. Uh, yeah, I have a quote from the editor's section from Jackie Shelton Green, um, who says, there are a few people in my circle that I trust to edit my work, but I have to put myself to the test first. And I I really feel the same way, not to be like, oh, I'm the same as like NC Poet Laureate Jackie Shelton Green, but <laughs> that part of the process, I can definitely relate. I think I have a sort of cadence to my draft process where I'll I'll work on a draft and I like to get to the point where I feel like I've done everything with it that I can. Not that I think like, oh, it's perfect and it can't be improved, but I'm stuck. <laughs> like I know that maybe there are things that need to be fixed, but I can't figure out where to go with it or I have questions. And that's when I go to, you know, the people in my circle who I trust to help me edit it and I get their notes and their feedback. And then that really helps me to to get that outside perspective and see like, like we were talking about, even with bios, you know, maybe there's something that I thought was important that somebody else reads and they're like, yeah, like you, you really don't need this. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I like to, I like to take it to the limit of where I can take it with that draft before I bring it to someone else. And then they give me the feedback and then I can go back and start making more changes. And, and this ties in to, to the revision 
process too, because if you're the author revising your own work, as she says here, you should put yourself to the test first, right? Mm -hmm. You don't write this thing and upload it to Amazon. <laughs> I mean, you challenge yourself to go back and, uh, and do as much as you can. But as you said, Sarah, sometimes you get to a point, it's great to have, you know, other eyes on it. Um, and Hannah, you've got, uh, a quote about editing from one of your uh, favorite thriller writers from down in, uh, I guess, the low country yeah. of South Carolina. Yeah. Yeah, Brad Taylor. Um, Brad says, so the editor would just rip me apart until I'd just stomp around the house, mad as all get out. Um, we went through the entire process of networking, of reworking the, that book, and then it sold. She absolutely made it better, and she taught me a lot about writing. Um, I love this quote because I think you can give yourself permission to get mad about it, too. <laughs> like, you don't have to just be like, okay. Like I mean, it's okay to be emotional about the stuff that you have to cut out and the things that you wish you could keep in, but it just doesn't make sense. And I think the, edit the editor's job is to tell you when it doesn't make sense. So I think as a writer too, something that you can always keep in the back of your mind is that the things that you're cutting out doesn't mean that they don't exist in the story. Like you can still use those things towards crafting the story. It's just like, not written out if that makes sense so I feel like he kind of hits on a lot of different points in this just sort of being you know one with your emotions let it all out um, but also know that working with an editor is going to make it better and you're going to learn a lot too so it's just like this multifaceted process that really can contribute to a lot of growth as like a person and a writer you know so um, I just feel like he kind of roped into a lot of things to that one statement I remember him when I interviewed him and he was talking about this editing process. I think he said his editor, and this is early in his process of writing, sent him something and, and was criticizing. And she said, look, I want you to do a little exercise. I just want you to write something, you know, uh, in first person about this particular character. And he said, I went into it and it was the snarkiest thing. I was so upset. I just wrote this thing and I sent it to her and she, and she emailed me back. said, this is the best you've, thing you've done so far. I want, uh. I, want to I want to capture that voice. You know? <laughs> Authenticity. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, but on the on the editing side, uh, it's, you know, and I'll just throw out my quote here that, that I liked, uh, Kevin Winchester. Uh, he says, editors, it's a love-hate relationship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's true. And I think uh, Brad... Taylor was kind of leading into that by his experience um, because he says the book got better. It just infuriated him uh, to go through it. And, you know, as Nora Gaskin, my editor, says, she's not trying to be my friend. I can put her picture on a dartboard if I want to. She says the whole purpose <laughs> is to make your book better. So, Landa, she might have to like me or like my advice. <laughs> you know? And uh, she tells that to all her clients. I say, oh, yeah. well, that's fair. That's fair. As long as I throw yeah. darts at you, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Y'all probably seen that, and, and I know Sarah with the with the traditional publishing, you get assigned an editor, you know, by the by the publisher. And some authors have great experience with who they're assigned to edit their books. Others, not so much. So mm -hmm. sometimes the infuriating side of it can be even they've changed editors in the middle of the process, and another editor wants something different than the first one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and they're. There are all sorts of things that can happen. Um, and I think that working with an editor, as these quotes show, like it can be a really wonderful and rewarding thing, but it's always inherently going to be a little bit tough. I think for every writer, there's this little portion of your brain that anytime you're getting feedback, whether it's from an editor or a friend or whoever it might be, like you want them to just be like, oh, it's perfect. Don't change mm -hmm. a word. You're yeah. Shakespeare. <laughs> and I think like the bigger, more rational part of your brain hopefully knows like, no, it's it's not perfect. And I want them to give me good constructive feedback and partner with me to help make it better in the end. Um, but of course, anytime somebody is giving you criticism, even if it's in a constructive way and it's helpful and it's good and it's delivered tactfully, it still kind of feels like you're your work is being torn down a little bit. Um, and so I think it's natural to have to fight that back. Um, it was funny. I, I did an interview recently with Jenny Jackson on her novel Pineapple Street. And she, this is her first novel, but she is an editor who's worked with some of the best writers out there. And she was talking in the interview about her experiences now being on the other side of that, having been an editor for years and how she always prided herself as an editor on giving these like really long 
thoughtful, detailed editorial levels to her writer clients. And then she got her letter from her editor and it was like this long thing with all these notes and she just had to put it away for a while and, and be angry <laughs> and be like, wait, why have I been doing this to my writers for so long? Because it can be it can be hard and it can be overwhelming. Um, but yeah, if you find someone who has, I think, the same overall creative goal and vision and who can help you get there in the end, then that's totally invaluable. Yeah, and I think it comes as uh, a trust side of it too because y'all can listen to an earlier episode we did where uh, Sarah's blog post was there, The Art of Receiving Feedback. And uh, you know, there is an art to that, uh, not to closing your ears off entirely to what you're hearing because you're frustrated that you're getting critiques because you know, maybe this person who's critiquing your work is always starts out doing the same thing every time and yet today... They had a really good suggestion, but you were closed off to it because you were presuming that they weren't going to have a good suggestion. So, yeah, um, and that's in, that's like when you're in these little circles where people are, uh, you know, vying to be the most critical critiquer yeah. <laughs> in the group. But if you have trust, if you have trust in those groups and people know each other, it's much different. And then when you're working one-on-one with folks as well, it's, it's great to get that feedback. All right, uh, we're going to now play the reflections uh my reflections uh, on what's uh, in this particular book. When I retired from the practice of law, I wanted to spend time with people who like to write and who were good at it. I thought, what better way to meet and learn from other writers than to interview them? By starting a podcast that focused on books and writing, I took the first step toward broadening my writing community. It's been a wonderful experience because who would you rather spend time with, really? Lawyers or writers? I rest my case. One of the biggest lessons I learned about writing communities from this book is that writers, though they tend to lean toward the introverted side of life, recognize the pleasure and benefits of being in a community with other writers. They like to be around their people, and they can meet them anywhere, in MFA programs, in community writing classes, in writers' workshops, in critique groups, at conventions, at bookstores, online. And as award-winning author Jenny Elliott said, it is a little bit like dating. The rewards of being in a writing community are worth getting over your shyness, however. For one thing, you'll have a good time. Author Stephen Grossman said it well. If I knew it was so much fun being friends with writers, I wouldn't have bothered with people that aren't. Novelist Susanna Marin agreed, I love meeting other writers. I love having writers as friends because we all share that component of our lives. Add to the fact that your writing will improve in a writing community, and what's not to like about being a part of it? Ed Southern, author and executive director of the North Carolina Writers Network, said, the literary community includes anyone who is involved with the written word in one way or another. And he advised, you want community to be a place where people feel welcomed and even nurtured, as opposed to a place where they feel put down or excluded. It's a place where you can find feedback and support and share your knowledge with other writers. And it's also a place to find motivation. As novelist Meredith Ritchie said, someone's going to be there on this date and expect you to have a decently written chapter, and they're all going to sit around a table and critique it. That was wonderful motivation for me to meet some deadlines that I might not have met had I not had that structure. In addition to podcasting with authors, I'm a member of local and statewide writing organizations. I attend writing conferences online and in person. I circle back with authors who have been on the podcast. I read and blurb their books, and they've been very kind to write reviews for my books. As poet Gail Peck said, writers nurture one another. We share that loneliness, as award-winning mystery writer Tracy Clark put it. And as award-winning author Lainey Cameron suggested, find your writing community early and not only find them, but work out how to give back. And look for ways to collaborate too, like with this project where my podcast co-host helped me get these quotes into the world. Two other big takeaways from the quotes in this book are that good writers are not afraid to revise their work. They do not fear constructive feedback. In fact, they welcome it. They recognize the need to improve what they've written. Even the bestsellers agree. David Wadachi said, self-editing continues to this day. Not every word that I write is going to be set in stone. Some days I'm better than other days. And some days require more editing when I go back and look at what I've written. And sometimes I just delete it all and start again. That's just the nature of the beast. He's had the same editor for 25 years because, as he says, I need him to push me. He gets me to think at the next level and the next level and the next level and to keep going deeper. Speaking of editors, I identify with what award-winning writer and college professor Kevin Winchester said about them. Editors, it's a love-hate relationship. 
I laugh at my editor, also a novelist, Nora Gaskin, said, I am willing to be annoying. If you put my face on your dartboard, that's okay with me. That's what I consider to be doing my job, because it's about telling a story in the best way you can possibly tell it. And she's right. Each time she sent back written comments on my manuscripts, I'd have to set them aside for two or three days so I could cool down and think through them logically, not emotionally, about what was on the page. And in the end, I'd have to admit that she had some good points, and the story became better. It's all part of the process. I am better about it now than when I wrote my first book. I try not to take my editor's comments or others' comments about my writing personally, and when others ask for my advice on their work, I say they should take it with that proverbial grain of salt by using what works for them and discarding what doesn't. In one of our episodes, Nora shared her approach to developmental editing, which is add, subtract, reorder, clarify. With addition, we are shaping the narrative with missing pieces and focusing on the five senses. With subtraction, we are eliminating unnecessary words and scenes. With reordering, we are putting the story in the best possible order. And with clarifying, we are trying to say what I mean and mean what I say. Because one of my top writing mantras is, if the reader doesn't get it, It's not the reader's fault, it's the writer's fault. It would be a mistake to have a book on revising and editing that does not address mistakes. Award-winning author Kathy Pickens said, if we're not making mistakes and things aren't working, we just aren't trying anything new. One author said that typos are more resilient than cockroaches and can survive a nuclear blast. I agree and have a theory that gremlins are to blame. There are two types of gremlins, in my opinion, who plague manuscripts. One, the second-guessing gremlins, the ones in an author's head who say, this is terrible, you can do much better, don't ever stop revising. And two, the destructive gremlins, the little green monsters who attack an author's completed manuscript and mess with the spelling, both the misspelled words and the correctly spelled wrong words. And they mess with the grammar, the style, the punctuation, and more. And unfortunately, they are immune to all forms of insecticide. Thanks for listening to that. Those are some, but definitely not all of our favorites. In fact, we love them all in the book, so we wouldn't have put them in there. Uh, You can order this book online and uh, wherever books are sold. And uh, when you do, you support the podcast. We really appreciate that. And you can join our street team if you like. Just go to our website, charlerspodcast.com, and look for the podcast books page, and uh, you can find out how to join that. And uh, we'll send you the books, uh, e-books for free, and you can just leave an honest review online, or you can join Patreon for as little as $5 a month, and we'll send you the books that way as well, and you can get extra content. Uh, I think uh, 150 or more ex- episodes that are exclusive uh, as a Patreon member. So thanks for all that, uh, and let's, uh, hey, we're going to, right after this, uh, let you know what's coming next. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. All right. Thanks again for uh, spending uh, some of your valuable time with us today. Uh, Sarah, can you let us know what's coming in the next episode? I sure can. Next time we have an interview with award-winning journalist and debut author Tracy Buchanan about her novel Toward the Corner of Mercy and Peace, which author Susan Reinhardt describes as Southern fiction at its finest, and author Camille Pagan says it is a story about finding the courage to carve your own path while you still have time. We also feature Matt Scott, who's the author of Surviving the Lion's Den series, and his blog post called The Keys to Writing My First Novel. Um, Plus, we're going to have a thought-provoking Charlotte two-minute tip and some elevator pitches in our book recommendations. All right, uh, Hannah, so take us home. All right, everybody. Read on, write on, and rock on. (laughs) 